So here we go. New Testament survey, we've talked about the synoptics. I would remind you of uh, the harmonies, and I've got these out for you to look at. And again, you can borrow them if you wish. Um, but again, tonight, this one is uh, the New American Standard. This one is the New International. They are exactly the same in the organization. In other words, which passages are, are when in the chronology. Uh, the difference is the translation. That's it. And um, so I encourage you to look at these, uh, especially as you read through and study through the uh, Gospels, because it allows you to get a breadth of what's going on and to, to read the Gospels pretty much all at once as more of a biography of Jesus than just what seems sometimes to be disconnected things. And in some of them, they truly are. Mark had a tendency to do that, uh, where there's just non secretaries like, we're here, whoop, we're over there. How did we get over there, you know? And it's, that's just his style. See? So this helps to uh, move around that. Um, any questions from last week on the Synoptic Gospels? Are there any questions about the Gospel of John that you would like to make sure are addressed? Randy, you said that it was written about 30 years after the... Yep. And how do you know that, and why did it take so long? Okay, I'll just put dating, and we'll, we'll discuss the whole thing, okay? What else? Uh, actually, it means to look together. Look together. Yeah. Doesn't John, the Gospel of John, look similar or together? Similar can be a relative term. So one of the things that we'll definitely look at is that issue of similarity, both between the synoptics and the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, they're all, obviously, they're Gospels. They are stories of Jesus. Mm -hmm. okay. So immediate similarity. There are passages that overlap, absolutely, but not anywhere near the way the three line up. And there's a reason for that, and, and it actually comes into play with this. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. Any other questions? Not Mark and not Luke, but oh, yes, Matthew. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I'm not sure what the question is. Um, why is it not considered uh, looking together? Okay, so once again, it comes back to the similarity and, okay. and dissimilarity. So we'll we'll deal with that.
So we've got the similarity, let's have the differences as well. Yes. And again, both of these are going to tie into the dating. Different, not as in contradictory. No, no certainly no, no contradiction. What's the difference from the three? Right. Okay, any other questions you want to make sure that we address about the Gospel of John before we dive in? Your average time so far as a class is eight seconds in. I wait 10 usually. Average teacher waits 1.5. So if I do what most do, then I don't get your questions. And I want to do that too, because none of us likes that awkward silence. But it's just a way to make sure I don't jump the gun when someone's trying to frame it in their mind or, wait a minute, I did have a question. And so when you ask questions, give people time to think of the answer. That's the moral of the story. All right, let's see. We pass those down. We pass those down. Appreciate it. I'll leave these here in case anybody else comes in. Gonna wait about four or five minutes, and uh, then uh, I'm gonna start over here around. If you would just pick this up and pass it. Same thing as always, you know, just sign in if you would, but if you want to be on the email list and you're not, then give me your email. I think everybody here has probably already dealt with that. All right, so the Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament. It is arranged that way for precisely the same reason that we're dealing with it in the way we are. You have the synoptics, and they wanted to put the Gospels first, and this was kind of a universal thing. The, the people who did this, by the way, in terms of the organization of the books um, did this you know, 300 years later <laughs> um, because it, it was not immediate that there was a collection that got passed around together all the time it would be the different documents the different letters all circulating among churches and uh, and remember you know there's no printing press there's no bindaries like we know them so we're living in a very different age when these were written so um, once we had the canon, we had the New Testament books, it was some time before they were actually arranged and everybody accepted an arrangement. And by that I mean it was the popular thing to do. If you wish, you can get book, um, New Testaments that are not arranged the way our New Testament is arranged. Because God didn't do that, we did. So, for example, there's what's called a chronolo chronological New Testament. And what it does is exactly what these harmonies do with the Gospels, except it does it with the entire New Testament. From the earliest part of the New Testament, chronologically, to the latest part. Anybody want to guess, by the way, the author who uh, writes both the earliest and the latest? You get extra points. What? John. John. And you knew this why? It's Revelation. So the Revelation, you're going to go to that, and you figure like, okay, that's true. 
So it must be on the other side. Why, why would we say, though, that John wrote the earliest thing? Because, see, you can do this with the Bible, not just the New Testament. And John would be at the beginning of the Bible. And you're all pondering. This in the good. beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, in the beginning, by the way, is the takeoff of Genesis. Genesis, Genesis. in the beginning. <clears throat> I mean, they're, they're Jews. They know this. So John starts his, uh, his letter with the same phrase. But the prologue of John's gospel, we're going to get to that systematically in just a moment. The prologue of John's gospel is um, not just about creation, but about before creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him that were created. And apart from him, nothing was created. So creation's here. He's here before creation. So the prologue actually is the account of the earliest thing chronologically. And then as soon as the, that part of the prologue would be written, if you're doing a chronological Bible, then you get Genesis 1. Before the rest of John 1. John, the rest of John 1 is like way down the road. But now you have Genesis 1. So you guys can do that if you wish. It's not an issue. It's not um, any kind of blasphemy to say, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm looking at this, looking at this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written together. They are synoptic. They are, you know, to view together. So they're placed first, and then John was placed right after them so that the four Gospels go together. But John, for a reason, was placed after and not before. So we'll get to that in a second. The, the books of the Gospel of John, of course, include the Gospel of John. You'll see why I say the books included, like last week, there was more than one. In this case, it's just one. Uh, the author is John, the son of Zebedee. Um, his mother's name was Salome, and possibly, possibly a cousin of Jesus. There's a phrase uh, in the New Testament that could be construed that way, but there's a problem with it, and the problem with it is cultural. So we know what the words mean. What we don't know is how they understood them when they wrote them and meant them. And that's part of translation, yes? So ate means? Older sister. Older sister. What does older sister mean to your child? To my, um, it's age-related. Yes. Oh. What would you say? Aunt. Aunt, or if you live in California, aunt like little crawly things, see? Now, so I have Filipino friends and they introduce me to ate so-and-so. And I've heard this, so it's aunt, right? I didn't realize you had an aunt. Oh, they're not really an aunt. Yeah. I get this from Stephen like once a week. He's related to the entire nation of the Philippines, <laughs> right? I'm sure you are too. It's the way, it's a cultural thing, you see? So the word, we know what the word means to us. But the word doesn't necessarily mean to the people who wrote it and listened to it exactly what it means to us. In the culture, it could have different construction. We do know that John was, he's the brother of James. There's two James listed in the uh, list of the 12 apostles. And then there's a third James who comes into play in the book of Acts, who is actually Jesus' little brother. And he's the one, we're going to see this later, 
He's the one who actually wrote the letter that we know as James in the New Testament. His nickname was James the Just. Um, was referred to as Old Camel Knees. Did I see shirts? Pleasant for some reason? You've you heard it before. Okay. You shared it last week. I thought, uh, yeah, I was getting that deja vu, but you guys are looking at me like, really? So anyway, um, the James that we're talking about are is the James that's always James and John. James and John. Or Peter, James, and John. Going to Gethsemane. Jesus did not take the 12. He took three, the inner three. Peter, James, and John. Okay, And, of course, they fell asleep on him. But these were either his, his most intimate disciples or his best friends, depending on the, the angle you look at it. And James and John were very young. Okay, they were they were probably and there's no actual age given to us, so we have to we have to look at how how old could they have been to do this? Well, we know they did in the, in the Gospels, and then to survive as long as John did, because John lived until the late 90s. Um, odds are pretty good that in the narratives of the Gospels, they were teenagers, okay? And teenagers absolutely could follow rabbis around. They could be a rabbi. But, you know, you have men like Peter, but then you have these young men, James and John, and they were not mature. And there's some fun things like um, they had a nickname. Does anybody remember their nickname? Origins. What? Origins. Bo yeah, Boanerges. Um, no one knows how that was pronounced, so... Do you remember what it means? Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. It's Aramaic, which is a, it's kind of a descendant of Hebrew. It's a later version of Hebrew. And it means Sons of Thunder. So they're headed from Galilee through Samaria up to Jerusalem. By the way, no one ever went down to Jerusalem. So it's called Holy Geography. You'll see, and no account ever is down to Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with elevation. It's respect. For Jerusalem, so you'll never see a biblical account referring to that, even though they're going south, or if they're in a higher elevation, they're still going up to Jerusalem. So they were headed south up to Jerusalem, and Samaria, which was the region that the um, th that had been uh, when in the oh, what's the tribe I'm looking for? Drawing a blank. Jonah went to Ninevites, which were the Assyrians. There we go. Wow, that took a while to just form the connection. The Assyrians were the first to conquer Israel. And the gospel, or the gospel that the prophets say very clearly that they conquered Israel because God told them to and let them. It was a punishment after literally hundreds of years of prophets warning them it was coming. And when the Assyrians conquered Israel, one of the things they did is scatter Israel all over the Assyrian Empire. And they were doing the same thing with other nations. So they would take large, large portions of the populations of other nations, scatter them into other places. And they didn't force intermarriage. They didn't have to. They forced them to live there. So now you've got people from... Um, from uh, what we would call Syria or even Egypt. 
and they're settling in what used to be Israel, but it's now part of the Assyrian Empire. And then there's some people from Israel still left there. And the men of, of one group, one nation, and the women of another look around, and they're looking at their future, and they know they can't leave, because they've got all these guys with armies saying, no, you can't, and so they intermarry. And what it did is destroy nationalism, which led to rebellion. It's really a brilliant strategy. It also destroyed faith. And by the way, that was intentional. Faith also led to the rebellion. So now you've got the Samaritans, which are a hybrid of numerous Gentile groups and um, people who were descended from Israel. And they hated the Israelites, and the Israelites hated them. Jesus and his followers coming down through, um, through Galilee, through Samaria, and up to Jerusalem. They're headed that direction. Come to the north side of the city. It's almost sundown. city closes its gates, which was common. These are walled cities. That was protection. At night is when you could expect marauders or even foreign armies to attack. So they close the gates. Sentries are posted. Here's Jesus. Here's his disciples. They're outside the gates, and it's cold, and they've got nothing, and let us in. We're just, we just want to come in and sleep. You know, no, you can't. And it says the reason they, can't, they couldn't is because they saw that they were headed to Jerusalem. So there was a little snarkiness there, okay? And James and John, notably John, this guy, see, they were the mature ones. They turned to Jesus. Full of faith, mind you, because they had to have faith to suggest this. Lord, command us, we will call thunder and lightning from heaven to destroy them. How's that for following the Prince of Peace? <clears throat> Jesus looked at them and said, no, I suspect rolled his eyes. doesn't say he rolled his eyes. I just read that in. Um, and from that point forward, they were called sons of thunder. So this is the guy we're talking about. Now, his little brother had died years earlier. Uh, we don't know exactly when, but a long time before. Um, but he, he was an old guy by the time he wrote this. A uh, little bit more about him, by the way. It's not on your, your form here. Uh, he was a fisherman. It's one of the reasons they were close to Peter and Andrew, another set of brothers, because they were from Galilee and they were fishermen. And they kind of went back to that in those periods where they weren't following Jesus uh, because they were waiting for him to do something, whatever. Um, what that means is he was not a well-educated man. Okay, He would not have gone to school. Um, would have been rather uh, unusual, in fact, for a rabbi to turn to a couple of fishermen, much less two sets of fishermen brothers, and say, follow me. Because what the rabbi is doing is telling them to come into his rabbinical school, to be educated, if you will, uh, in his rabbinical school. That's what it meant, follow me. And uh, pretty unusual for them to do it. So, you know, there's a lot that's pretty typical, but there's a lot that's not about this whole situation. Now, when exactly was it written? Uh, we know it was written late first century. Excuse me, it is uh, listed here circa 95 AD. 
you can always, when you've got something like that, unless there's a very specific event tied to it, you can usually say three to five years, give or take, for the simple reason that they used a different calendar, and their calendar was translated to another calendar, which was then translated to another calendar, which was then translated to one roughly what we use. And every time you do that, dates get kind of, you know, well, we think that would be about here on this calendar. So when someone says, well, it was 95 AD, that is not with confidence, okay? But we know it was late for several reasons. And we have historic references that tell us this. Um, but we know that John, when the Romans leveled Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, they literally, almost every section was no two stones on top of each other. Very notable exception that we know about today. Anybody remember it? I guarantee you've heard of it. How many of you have heard of the Wailing Wall? Okay. The Wall of Tears. The, the, I believe they call it the West Wall. It is the only remaining portion of Herod's Temple. And one of the only remaining portions of Jerusalem from that, that time, period. Because the Romans were making a point. And it was both to the Jews and to every other nation who heard about it. You mess with us. This is what happens to you. And there were a lot of people killed during that process. It wasn't like they just said, all right, everybody out. We're going to mess with your city. They killed the people as they were leveling the city. John escaped, as did most of the other apostles who were still resident, and moved northward. If you can picture today, you've got Israel, Syria to the north, Turkey to the north of that, and then moved inward or westward um, into in what we would call Turkey to uh, a city called Ephesus. When we have our letter to the Ephesians, well, an Ephesian was a resident of Ephesus. Okay, So he went to Ephesus and kind of set up headquarters there. And he stayed there um, roughly 25, 30 years. By the time he wrote the Gospel, the three letters, and the Revelation, he was the only apostle left. We have numerous references in historic documents to the fact that John was the surviving apostle. So here's this guy who had been a, a young kid, in essence, with Jesus, walking around with Jesus. Now he finds himself to be the only living person who had experienced all those things that are written about. By this time, and again, we know from some historical records that the synoptics had been circulated for decades already. So it took time. I mean, it wasn't like, like this. Somebody on the other side of the world has it electronically. Um, but decades was plenty of time. So the synoptic gospels were in full circulation. Churches all over the world had copies of them, studied them, read them aloud in teaching sessions, and so forth. Which means John knew exactly what they had with regard to Jesus. He knew what they knew in terms of Jesus' life, and he knew what they didn't know. John had one other thing working in, his, in, in the direction of what caused him to write things, and that was that by this time, 
the false teaching, the heresy of Gnosticism was in full bore, or full bloom. Um, by when, when uh, the others were written, the synoptics were written, it was forming out of Greek philosophy as, uh, as Greeks became Christian, but brought their philosophy with them and did exactly what we're talking about on Sunday morning. They have this new culture of Christianity, but they've also got their old culture. And no, not everybody filtered the, the old through the new. Sometimes it went the other direction. So many of them held on to the Greek dualism, which was a belief that all creation is matter and spirit. Matter and spirit are polar opposites, and they cannot coexist. Matter is bad, spirit's good. Okay. So you'll see a lot of this reflected in teachings even as early as Paul's uh, Corinthian letter, where he spends a lot of time reminding people of the reality and the necessity of the bodily resurrection. Why would he do that? It's not that they were skeptic like we are, by the way. They were much more ready to accept uh, the miraculous, both because of their cultures and because they were much closer to the times when those things had been happening. They, they knew people who were walking around and saw the resurrected Jesus. But the bodily resurrection, spirit, which is good, comes back into the body, which is bad. Why would, why would it do that? Why would God do that? God is spirit. Why would he mess with flesh? Which led them to also even deny that Jesus had come and become flesh, become a person. It was all a big mirage. It was a big trick. He walked around as a spirit imitating a person. See? And it all links back to that Greek philosophy. By John's time, this had rooted itself in the church. Many people had bought into it. And you're going to see throughout the Gospel of John, John teaching against it. Why do you suppose it is that John is the only Gospel explicitly stating the word became flesh. Do you, do you see it? See, when the others were written, it wasn't that big an issue. Everybody understood it. It's not like John made it up and, and had this new idea. But when John wrote, people were saying, no, he couldn't have done that. Spirit doesn't become flesh. And you'll see that theme developing not only through the Gospel of John, but also through his letters and even in the beginning of the Revelation of John, where Jesus writes letters to the seven churches. And the reason is that historically they were in a different situation. They're writing to a group of people in a different situation. So the dating is after, a generation after the synoptics. And the reason is simple. John says, I write these things so you can believe, so you can have faith. So you can trust. So you can live accordingly. That's what believe means. And then the similarity and differences are going to be dictated not just by John, because John was there. He saw the same things. He, by the way, may well have been literally present during the construction of the earlier Gospels. He was in residence in Jerusalem. Certainly knew Matthew. In all likelihood knew Mark and Luke would not have been unusual at all for him to know that they were doing this 
and, and to watch it unfold. But now, knowing he's the last one, he wants to make sure they hear what they need to hear and that certain things are corrected because of the false teaching that's floating around. Okay. Randy, yes, you ma'am. mentioned decades, generations, and 30 years. So what are we looking at? Um, early to mid-60s for the synoptics, mid-90s. So 30 sure. years. 30 years. About 30 years. Yeah, it's not exact. Yeah. Um, but roughly. It's confusing at all. Yeah. Decades. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's roughly three decades. Generation, I suppose, is up to you. You know? <laughs> Depends on what part of the country you're from, and sometimes generations a lot shorter than other places. Yeah. Okay. The purpose was basically as an apologetic. By the way, what is an apologetic? If you hear apology, what do you hear? Okay. Yeah, probably not an excuse for unless it's a kid making an apology and you're saying that wasn't really an apology. It's I'm sorry. That's what we tend to mean when we give an apology. Um, the word apologia does not mean I'm sorry. It means an explanation. So the modern uh, field of apologetics, have you heard that word? So apologetics is a, a field of biblical study and it's the explanation of things that people in the world do not understand and therefore frequently call into question with regard particularly to Christian faith and descriptions. That's what apologetics is about. So it's giving an explanation. I had a professor who used to say, um, if I call you up on the platform, and he would demonstrate this, although he was not really doing it. He was a very nonviolent guy. Um, and he would call somebody up and he says, I kick you as hard as I can in the shins. An apology is, I'm sorry. I kicked you and I shouldn't have. An apologetic, an apologia, is I kick you in the shins, and I'm going to tell you why. There ain't no remorse involved. It's just, this is what I did, this is why I did it. So what? That's real, okay? This is an apology in that sense. It's an, it's an explanation, okay? And it's an explanation uh, with regard to the gospel account. It presents Jesus as the Son of God which is an interesting phrase that we'll get to in a minute. Um, and apparently to supplement, again, the accounts of the, of the synoptics, because they were already floating around. And that then explains why there are certain things where he will, of course, talk about them. They're that important. But there's large, large sections of things he doesn't touch on at all. Why? It's been done three times. They got three other Gospels that have already got it. And there's things that instead he, he hits that they never touched on. Both because of this is what people need to hear today, but also because, okay, you did that already, I'm the last guy. And then Paul or John writes uh, a passage at the end of his letter where he says, there are many, many other things that Jesus did and said. There's no building big enough to hold the books if the accounts of these things were all written down but I offer these to you that you can believe. So he's, he's making a clear statement. Of course there's more, but these are things you need to have. So I'm leaving you with these. Okay. Son of God, interesting phrase. 
How many of you know the Son of God? Jesus. I just ask for a hand raise. Okay. How many of you know the Son of Randy? I've met him. I've got one. Yes. Are they the same phrase? Ah. Look at y'all going. Okay, so they're the same, but they're different. Is that what you just said? <laughs> Which I'm good with, because I'll go with that. But they are different, at least in some ways. And this is extraordinarily important, okay? Worldwide, who is the, what is the fastest growing faith group? Islam. Islam. You know what Islam thinks of this? You know what they teach, by and large, about this? Oh, well, they, they teach it's not true, but what? He hasn't been born. No, 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 no. They're not into that at all. Oh, Jewish okay. Messiah, not their oh, issue. Oh, but he wasn't. He, never he wasn't the son of God. He did exist. In fact, was a prophet. Yes. Yes. So, so they're left with this problem, and they solve the problem, by the way, by saying Christian writings are um, are uh, twisted. That somewhere along the line, we've messed them all up. So certainly no one inspired by God would originally do that because they do officially accept the Bible. You understand this? Islam is an offshoot of Judaism and Christianity, historically. But if you ask the average Muslim, particularly in the Middle East, because they're not as exposed to Christian teaching as, say, someone in a mosque in Orange County, because they're probably going to understand what we mean by this. The average Muslim in the Middle East thinks this is like Hercules, son of Zeus. Y'all remember the mythology? How did Hercules come about with Zeus? How'd that happen? You didn't watch the TV show? Nope. No, he had sex with a human female. Looked at a human female, said, wow, that's much better than Hera, and had sex with her, and here's Hercules, half God, half human. Muslims teach that that's what we believe about the Son of God. Anybody here believe that? No. Of course not. We don't believe that God somehow physically came down, had sexual intercourse with Mary, and here's Jesus. Kind of contrary to the whole virgin birth thing, right? But the Son of God phrase is confusing. This is why we need to understand it. My son's name is Joshua, for those of you who don't know him, haven't met him. Um, Joshua's an old man now. He's going to turn 40 next year. Whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm still 36. I don't know how in the world he got there. Um, Joshua did not exist before Donna and I conceived him. He didn't exist. God knew about him because he can foresee, but he didn't exist. Would you agree? Did Jesus exist? Did the Word exist before the Christmas event? The Word was with, flesh, was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning. See? So way before he became flesh and we gave him a name, Jesus... He existed. Now, if you want to get real technical, by the way, Jesus did not exist until the birth. 
because that's when they named him Jesus. But the one who became Jesus, of course he did, see? So this isn't a physical son the way we think of son. Would you agree? Okay. This isn't even God, the real God, the father God, and this junior God who's kind of a kid God, God saying to the kid God, you know what, I'm going to send you down there, you're going to be a human. The teaching of the Godhead, which we refer to as the Trinity, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different and yet of the same essence. And if that does not cause you a headache, you're not paying attention. And if you think you should understand everything about God's nature, why would you think that? Because that would mean that someone with no more smarts than you made him up. If God is God, we're not going to fully understand his nature. So personally, I came to that about 20 years ago, teaching a congregation that was 50% engineers. And that'll make you go there real quick. Where you have to, If they don't see it happen, they don't believe it. And finally, we had to say, okay, guys, do you really think God is limited by your ability to understand? I mean, just, go, just think about eternity if nothing else. You won't get to sleep tonight. You really start thinking about eternity, you won't get to sleep. Because I'm one of those guys that does, and I spend many nights just laying there going, wow, you know. God the Father and God the Son are not like Randy the Father and Joshua the Son. This is a human metaphor. I'm not telling you it's untrue. Don't go out of here saying, Randy doesn't believe in the Son of God, because I do. What I'm saying to you is, don't anthropomorphize God. Don't make God into humans. Because obviously, Jesus, the Word, is far beyond any human son. Agreed? Otherwise, how could he be who we say he is? So. John is going to talk about the Son of God, and he's going to expand on what that means in a lot of ways um, that, again, the others just don't do. All right, the background of the gospel, we've talked about that a lot, but it's probably written in Ephesus to clarify and add to the knowledge from John's life experiences. It was probably, although we really were guessing, written after the letters. But then as soon as I say that, there's a whole other school of thought that says, probably written just before the letters. And what we're, what we're basing that on is 100% uh, our response to little literary clues, which means we don't really know, because they're not dated. So we know historically when they began to be circulated, generically when they were written, but we don't have this one, then this one, then this one, first, second, and third, implies the first first, the second, and then the third. But with regard to the gospel, not entirely sure. They overlap in the sense of their teaching. So when you hear John in 1 John, you read through that. If you have just read through the gospel of John, you're going, oh, wow, that looks familiar. And, and that's not hard to understand. The Holy Spirit uses human authors, human experiences, and situations in order to reveal truth. And he does that all throughout the Bible. So that makes perfect sense to us. 
Um, Ephesus, again, a city in uh, the Roman province of Asia Minor, the modern country of Turkey. And it was a very, very Greek city. So that's very different than today. You think of Turkey, what do you think of? Culturally. Muslim, and they are Muslim. Okay, they're a bit more what we would probably call liberal than, say, uh, Syria or certainly Saudi Arabia. Um, but make no mistake, they are solidly a Muslim country. Okay, uh, that didn't happen for many centuries. At this time, the primary influence culturally was Greece. Alexander the Great moving to the east, uh, went through all of what we know as Turkey, um, and he breezed through it. There was no real military uh, force there except that which was put there by his main target, which was Persia. Because Alexander's goal from the beginning was to go conquer Persia because they were the 800-pound gorilla. So he conquers them, he's now the big gorilla. And he did. So the entire Mediterranean world began to speak Greek because the Greeks were in power. When the Romans conquered centuries later, um, the Greeks had this amazing civilization, art, um, uh, trade, um, philosophy, um, all sorts of stuff like that. The Romans had roads and military prowess. And they didn't really want anything else. If you look at the Roman mythology, it's Greek mythology. They just gave Latin names to the Greek gods, adopted it wholesale. Don't care. They just went through and conquered. So even though they were the power, Ephesus was a totally Greek city in terms of culture and certainly language. So John writes in Greek. Now, 70 AD, he's, he may have left a little bit earlier. The, the tensions building between uh, the, the Israelites and Romans were not overnight. So lots of people saw the writing on the wall and lots of people fled before the devastation of Jerusalem. So somewhere in that, he moved north, got out of the, the zone of conquering and destruction, and you, you, you move to the U.S., what's the primary language in the U.S.? English. Everybody knows that. It's not the state language. But more people speak it than other languages. So if you come from another country, that's typically the language you're going to start trying to learn. Well, Greek was the primary language. So he starts learning Greek. If you compare the Gospel of John to the Gospel of Luke, in terms of sentence structure, vocabulary, basic grammar, it's going to be like watch, looking at the difference between um, somebody posting on Facebook and somebody writing an academic journal. That's what you're going to see. Who's who, by the way? Luke is the academic journal. Luke, the physician, the one who's trained academically. Of course, he's the one. He's got a, a much more expansive vocabulary. The, the grammar is much more proper. Proper is not actually accurate, by the way. Somebody who uses very proper English grammar is going to sound very strange to us. Our grammar is our grammar. It's the way we speak. And so it's a moving target. And what John wrote in is what's called 
uh, Kine Greek. We talked about that a little in the first session in translations. But uh, Luke was also Kine, but it was a, a higher version of it. Again, things like vocabulary and so forth. John's vocabulary was not particularly extensive. So when you go to study Greek, if you go to any school and study Greek, New Testament Greek, you're going to dive into the Gospel of John immediately because it is the most basic in terms of Greek. The words, the grammar, everything. And the reason's simple. This is a Galilean fisherman who didn't even start learning Greek until he was run out of Jerusalem by the Romans, and then he starts learning it. So he writes in a very simple, rudimentary Greek. Um, ironically, that is exactly the way he needed to write to be heard and understood by the vast majority of people. Because it was, I mean, it was literally way more than 10 to 1 who would read this kind. It was more like 100 or 1,000 to 1 who read this instead of, say, classical Greek. So the Holy Spirit prepared him, led him to be able to write in the almost a dialect, it's not quite technically a dialect, but it's pretty close, that the vast majority of people would read. And that, I find that kind of cool. Okay. Let's talk similarities and differences as we look at the content. In the book of John, there are no parables. There's a difference for you. In the synoptics, they all have parables. Luke is just overflowing with them. Luke is considered the, the, the book of parables. has actually been referred to that way. Um, John, no parables. None. There's none there. It's not that he couldn't write that way. It's not that he couldn't write a metaphor. This is the guy who wrote a letter in apocalyptic style, the Revelation of John. It's because that's not his point. That wasn't his purpose. Okay. Um, in the Gospel of John, there are only seven miracles recorded. And five of those you don't see anywhere else. So again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're recording things that are very commonly known, and they're emphasizing similar things. John has already seen those. He records some new information. So he records seven miracles. Five are not in the synoptics. And by the way, the first miracle is recorded in John. The first miracle we know of that Jesus ever did. Anybody want to guess which one that was? Water to the wine, which was, I mean, wasn't in a bar. Why did he do that? A wedding. Yeah, he was in a wedding. And he was in a wedding, not prepared to start his ministry, but there was a person there who had influence on him. Anybody remember that person's name? Mary. Mary. This was the wedding of a friend of Mary's. She brings her son along. Obvious. We, we would do things like that today. Um, they ran into a very, very embarrassing situation where the, uh, the wedding host ran out of wine. You don't do that. Okay? It wasn't like, okay, we'll just have Coke and tea and coffee and they didn't have anything else. There was water, most of which wasn't pure, and there was wine. That's all they had. So Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, son, come here. They're out of wine. You know, can you see her doing this? Fix it. Mary knows who he is, remember? She hasn't seen the ministry unfold yet. 
But she was there at the beginning. So she's in on this. And Jesus says, are you kidding? Get away from me. Well, okay, that's my paraphrase. He didn't say that. Um, what he said was, woman, what between you and me? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense in American, does it? It was a, uh, it was a uh, figure of speech that was kind of, what's that got to do with me? This was not his time. He wasn't planning on launching his ministry and publicly announcing who he was yet. Jesus was extraordinarily strategic, by the way, when you read the Gospels. But this is his mother. <laughs> this is like the archetypal original Jewish mother. And she said, whatever he says to do, you do it. And then she walks off. <laughs> and here's Jesus going like, wonderful. So, fill them all up with water, take them out, serve them. You can bet the servants were scared stiff. Like, this, this is something they would get beaten for. Take it out, turns out to be way better than what they had been serving in terms of quality of life. Okay. Most miracles had a very specific purpose pointing to who Jesus was for the purpose of letting people know he's going to be saying some things you need to listen to. You need to know who he is. You need to believe he's from God. Miracles did not happen because Jesus got in a cool mood and started doing things. They were very unusual even for Jesus to do. Very unusual. That's why they were so important and why they were recorded. But this miracle of all of them came about because Jesus loved his mother. Again, I think that's kind of cool. John was the disciple when Jesus was on the cross. And he says to John, not with his fingers, obviously. <laughs> Look, that's your mother. Looking at Mary. And says to Mary, Look, that's your son. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that they believed at the time that, that they were cousins. Because Jesus' little brothers, who are documented in the Gospels as unbelievers at that time, they existed, but they weren't believers. And Jesus wanted someone following him to care for Mary. His little brothers, by the way, met Jesus in the resurrection, and for some reason that turned them around. Can't even understand why. But this is how close Mary and John were. I don't know if John was there. It certainly doesn't say he was there in Cana at that wedding. What I suspect happened, pay your money, take your choice. I'm just looking at it is those two were very close. And I can hear Mary telling John stories about Jesus. Like any mother would. Albeit the mother of the Messiah. A little bit different. Telling a story like this. Did I ever tell you the first thing he did? You know. And then we get that from John. Otherwise, we would not know about that. By the way, we don't need to know about that's one of those things the Holy Spirit throws in just to encourage us and let us see kind of a neat story that helps us understand who Jesus was. Absolutely nothing theologically significant about it. All the people who say, yes, God was putting his blessing on marriage, oh, baloney. God, God had so put his blessing on marriage before that that this was nothing. So now I think this is just something they just put in, the Spirit put in, so we would know it.
which I find encouraging. Okay, so um, John's personal relationship with Jesus is emphasized. He refers to himself as? No, he, John refers yeah. to himself as. You remember? He wouldn't have said that because Jesus kind of pounded that out of him. The one who Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So all towards the end of the gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. All of a sudden he's talking about himself in third person. Um, the favorite thing, John's mother had earlier come to Jesus. John and James's mother, remember? and sparked one of those famous discussions among the disciples, which happened several times, about who among them was the greatest. Because they're following Jesus, the Messiah. So they're all kind of picking up on, this is going to go somewhere. We're on the ground floor of this, right? So Salome comes to Jesus and says, Grant that when you come into your kingdom, my sons will sit on your right and your left. Now again, everybody in that age totally understood what she just said. As evidenced by how angry the others got immediately. Because they were always arguing about who's the greatest. And it just threw them into a, a, a giant argument. What she had just asked is, okay, you're the one, we get it, you're the king. But would you make your number two and your number three my sons, James and John? And Jesus looked at him and looked at her and said, can they go through what I'm going to go through? He said that metaphorically. Can they endure the baptism? Can they be immersed into what I'm going to be immersed in? And she just, they'll do anything. <laughs> Again, Jesus was totally human. Hebrews says he was tempted every way that we are. I would be tempted to crack up right and I, I have to believe Jesus is looking at her with this combination of seriously and laughing at her naivety. Not, not putting her down, just wow. And he just kind of, he does this. He looks at her and he says, that's not up to me. It's up to the Father. And in other words, you're going to have to go talk to the Father about that one. And then once again, addresses the argument amongst them who's greatest. So, a lot that we know about the personal side of John comes out here. The focus of John is on the nature of Jesus' person, his person, and the meaning of faith in him. We talk about three-dimensional faith. You will see illustrations of that throughout the Gospel of John. Um, and, again, it contrasts with the synoptics. Now, to do that, we look at John. John gives more coverage to Jesus' ministry in the south around Judea. Um, where's my little marker? Aha, it's hiding. Now, there is a rule I have not invoked in some time, but I will remind you of it. Whenever I draw diagrams, he who or she laughs at my diagrams becomes the class artist. Everybody understand? Okay. That's Israel. See? People go to all this trouble making all these complicated maps. That's Israel. This is Jerusalem, right about there. 
okay? Galilee is up around here. That's what we call the Sea of Galilee. The Romans called it a lake, because it's a lake. This is the Dead Sea. This is what we would call Jordan. Syria's up here. Uh, modern Lebanon would be right around here. Um, Sinai here, Egypt here. See, all those places still where they were. Now, the north, Galilee, the middle, Samaria. Samaria was not, at this point, Jewish in that sense. It was still part of the Roman province because the Romans were the ones that divided it up, not the Jews. Um, and then Judea is this area. And Judea, of course, is where the southern kingdom was when, um, after Solomon, the kingdom broke into two parts. And so when it talks about the south or the north, the north you're talking about Galilee, and the south we're talking about Judea, primarily Jerusalem. Okay. So John focuses a lot on the ministry in Judea, um, a lot in Jerusalem. More emphasis is given on the person of Jesus and the inheritance of eternal life. Um, it is considered to be the gospel of the maturing church. In other words, there's not a lot of real basic stuff that you'll see in the other gospels. This is moving on more things that you need. Uh, emphasizes the heavenly meaning, emphasizes uh, long discourses. Um, for example, the uh, what's called the farewell discourse, 14th through the 17th chapters of the Gospel of John. All of that is one discussion Jesus had with his disciples just before the Last Supper. Because what happened right after the Last Supper? Gethsemane, the arrest, the trials, the torture. Jesus understood this was the last time to systematically talk and prepare them. So the farewell discourse, again, kind of an antiquated term, but whatever, that is where Jesus just spends time saying, again, I've told you already, now the time has come. I'm going to leave you. The disciples, no, you're not, no, you're not. Again, you see the rolling of eyes. Three years he's doing this. Yes, I am. This is where he talks about um, the, the home that we're going to have in heaven. I go where you cannot go. But I'm not leaving you. I go to prepare a place for you. This is where he talks about sending the Holy Spirit as the one who will walk alongside us. I send to you the paraclete, translated counselor, helper, comforter, numerous other words. Literally, I send to you one to, uh, that I've called alongside you, one who will, who will walk alongside you. And that's the description of the Holy Spirit. So uh, there's a number of, of discussions that we get. Not the only place. The synoptics, for example, have the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably by far the longest one that they use. But John is kind of given to that. Uh, a lot of commentary. He, he will talk about the Aramaic word. He will interpret a custom for them, which shows you he is writing this explicitly to a group of Gentiles when he's not. He grew up in Palestine, in, in Israel. He's writing about Israeli customs, words, and so forth. So he's giving them some interpretation, if you will, to help people who didn't know that culture understand more about it. Um, there are three different Passovers cited, which means he's covering 
chronologically at least a two-year segment. And depending on how you read it, it might be four, which would be the whole three years of Jesus' ministry. The point of that meaning, he's not just taking a little segment, but his, his discussion, even though he's filling in blanks, he's filling in blanks across the three-year ministry of Jesus. And uh, he focused a great deal on not only what Jesus said, but what he meant. So you'll hear a lot of, um, of the back talk that happened. Jesus said this, then he and the disciples pulled away, and the disciples said, hey, what, did, what was that about? What do you, what do you mean? And, and they would ask questions like that. Um, now, that's not exclusive to John, but John did that uh, a fair amount because he was one of the ones doing that. And because what was written in the synoptics didn't do that much. So he filled in some of that. Okay. Now, in contrast, the synoptics were mainly concerned with Jesus' ministry in the north around Galilee. They were, there was more emphasis on the kingdom, inheritance of the kingdom. Um, it was, it's considered the gospel of the infant church because, again, it was written um, to the early church. So we've got 30 years of growth, of teaching, of maturity. Um, for us, that sounds strange. We have 2,000 years of it. But you've got to put yourself in their position of people who, this is a brand new thing, um, and, and nobody in the world understood this. So they're, they're kind of starting in a new place. Even the Jews were having to re-understand much of what they've been taught. Because remember, they were, they were taught the Old Testament, and Jesus taught the Old Testament. He didn't make up new things. But he came and said, you're going to have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You're going to have to understand this in ways they never got to. And everybody understood what that meant, because the Pharisees were legalists and bent the word to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. Excuse me. Okay. Um, the synoptics were more of the earthly story, uh, heavy emphasis on Jesus' sayings and parables, um, as, a, as opposed to the long discourses, comparatively little commentary, one mention of a Passover in all of the synoptics. And it focused on what Jesus said, obviously not ignoring what he meant, but not hitting specifically and systematically what he meant. The final sections on the second part of your page there it talks about specific passages. Before we go there, any questions, thoughts, wonderings? Yes. Would you say? I'm sorry. Go here first, and I'll come over. intimate I would say that you would say that I would say I don't know if the Lord would say that I would say that it comes across to me much more that way and, and I'm by no means the other only one that would say that but yeah as a scholar well not just as a scholar I mean I, I developed that understanding as a brand new Jesus freak that didn't understand any of this but reading the Gospel of John for me was very different than reading Matthew. I was reading someone who very, from the very beginning, by the way, said, hey, I was there. 
you need to believe this because I'm telling you what we witnessed. I was there. That's in the prologue. He's more of a relational character, personality than Matthew the tax collector. And well, not only that, but remember the purpose. He's the last of the apostles. He's he's the old guy. He's the parrot, uh, uh, patriarch of the church, so to speak. The the last remaining of those Jesus chosen. And he had lived in that role for decades. So he's used to this, um, you know, the, the, the priestly, my son thing. He wasn't a priest in that sense. It didn't exist. But patronistic in a non-negative way. You know, have you ever had somebody like that, somebody in your life who was significantly older, had a lot more life experience, knew it, and shared it without cramming it down your throat or making you feel stupid. That was, that's John. Whereas Matthew wrote it explicitly as a, almost a debate. He's proving something. Mark, writing in the Roman style, right? Luke, again, absolutely, he's writing almost a court document. He's writing part one in the gospel of a two-part uh, explanation to be presented to the Roman judges who are going to provide over or preside over Paul's hearing. So that the very purpose of the gospels is different. John says, I write this to you, my beloved children, so you can believe. He's seeing, you know, here's the gaps that I see in your faith, and, and I'm writing to fill in those gaps. And so, yeah, from the very beginning, it's a much more intimate kind of approach. I sort of feel like that. This is way above me. So if I've missed it and I'm saying, I'll look up your list. <laughs> Thank you. I, if I missed it and I, in this, what you're all you're saying, but you had mentioned earlier about John was placed after Matthew, Mark, and Luke because, so, but did I miss what, where, why it, why, or is it because this is the personal account, or because Because it's those were written fact? first, and this was written, and in many ways filled in blanks. Okay, even though in a, technically a ways, it was at the beginning and he's at the end. Right. But. Right. It's not about chronology. Right, okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, if, they were, if it was going to be about chronology, it would have been before Genesis. Right, okay. So it's not about chronology, it's about Matthew, Mark, and Luke together Indeed. form a picture. John adds to the picture. So you read those three, okay. and then you read John, and you get more. Uh, more of a personal now, and... ironically, because of the personal, that's, that's typically the word that would be used today, but I buy intimate. Ironically, because of that, and because of the simplicity, the emphasis on faith, on Jesus as the one we believe in for eternal life, just simple statements of faith. John is the one, almost universally, when a new Christian starts reading the Bible, someone says, okay, here's where you start. And they, because you, you will almost never find uh, Bible publishers who will publish the Gospel of Luke, just the Gospel of Luke. I mean, it's in all the Bibles, of course. But you will find a lot of the translators who will publish just the Gospel of John. Because it's so common for people like me, and I do it too, to say, okay, you're just starting out. Here's where I want you to start. 
I want you to read the Gospel of John. And then let's talk about it. Write down your questions and we walk through it because it's a much more simple and personal. So it's much more easy for us to read. And then we graduate from that and go, I will then have them go to Matthew. You know, 2,000 years ago, they had the other, they had the idea to go the other direction. I think that's cultural. But it's all human. There's nothing God saying, do this or do that in there. Is that making sense? Yes, um, primarily because he was referred to as the Apostle of Love. Which is hilarious considering, you know, raw energies. <clears throat> the Apostle of Love. Hey, Mark, I know. Let's just demolish the whole city. <clears throat> but this is what happens when God gets old. And if you read um, both the Gospel of John and 1 John, read those together, which, by the way, is not a lot. I mean, for anybody that's a serious reader, that's an hour, two hours. It's not going to be real hard. Um, you will be very struck at the dominance of the word love and the specific love. Um, we all know that's an English word, right? So I guarantee you John did not use that word. Everybody understands why, right? So what word did John use? A gape. <laughs> A gape. Well, I mean, you know, that's what we see. A grape, yeah. No. Um, agape, because agape was the love, or is the love that God has for us, and it is the love that he commands for us, because it's the only form of love someone can be commanded to do. Think about it. Can't command Eros, which, by the way, never shows up in the New Testament. Can't command Phileo, hey, you become his best friend. Now, go. Doesn't work that way. Can't command Storhi, which is like a deeper, familiar version of Phileo. Phileo is brotherly love, but it's the brotherly love of best friends who aren't really brothers. Anybody ever have a, a very close friend, like a brother, like a sister, who wasn't a brother or sister? My best friend, uh, and, and I've had several, but one in particular, longer than anyone else, um, they haven't lived in the same state since 1982, but still very close. Absolutely phileo. But Storky is about actual familial love. So my brother, who actually hated my guts, and eh, pretty much um, in our early years, me too, um, yeah, that's, that's Storky. I will love him because he's my brother and I have to because he's my brother and whatever. But that love can be not so real. It's a love that you, you just, you, you do it because you have to live up to family expectations and you don't really want your mother yelling at you. Whereas for that, oh, you choose that. You choose it because there's something developing. None of those can be ordered. Agape can be ordered. Say that word again, Storky? Storky. Uh, in English, S-T-O-R-G-E. But remember, we're not dealing with English letters in the Greek alphabet, so that's not exact. Okay. Um, you'll, you'll often hear that there's three loves, but this one um, 
any academic treatise on love in the Greek New Testament will include it. Um, one for you guys that you would probably not be bored to tears by. Uh, if you'd like to be bored to tears, let me know. I've got some others. Um, but uh, C.S. Lewis, anybody hear C.S. Lewis? Mm -hmm. right. The whole Narnia thing, mm -hmm. remember him? Okay, C.S. Lewis was probably the greatest philosopher theologian of the, of the 20th century. Christian. And he wrote a book, it's about Yay Big. You can get it off Amazon used because I don't think anybody's printing it now. Uh, used is better, cheaper. Uh, it's called The Four Loves. And C.S. Lewis was a linguist and a uh, what's called a philologist. His, his academic field was literature. Not a certain type, but just the nature of literature. And so he does an extraordinary job of explaining these four concepts of agape, eros, storhi, and phileo in that little book, The Four Loves. So highly recommend it. Okay, uh, let's look at some specific passages. And these are the ones I would encourage you if you're, uh, instead of, uh, of doing the study guides, which we do in the exegetical studies, um, if you want to use something as a study guide, read these as a follow-up to each of the sections that we cover. Um, so in John, uh, the first 18 verses is what's called the prologue of John's Gospel, and this is the pre-existence and um, really the purpose of Jesus. This is where we hear that God gives the right to those who believe in him to be called the children of God. So it's an extraordinary statement. God gives us the right. It's not like we can say, hey God, I did this for you, so you're going to make me your son. You know, that's unbelievably arrogant. But no, God came to us and gave us that right. Um, John 3, 3, the origin of the term born again. How many of you heard born again? How many of you hear that as a positive term? Do you? Good. Things have changed a little bit. Um, born again 15 years ago was a derisive term for um, extraordinarily right-wing Christians who didn't understand anything. And the, the, the problem with that is that Jesus said, everyone has to be born again. So we literally had uh, one of our, uh, at the time, one of the wives of our elders was asked by a friend, are you one of those born again Christians? And this is, by the way, someone from a different culture and said, well, no. And I just about fainted. <laughs> no, don't say that. She understood, she didn't understand the way that was being asked. And indeed it was, by the way, being asked as, are you one of those people? You know, you're one of those people who runs around throwing rocks and hateful pe hating people, because that's what that sounds like. Um, in modern times, it was almost not used at all until a presidential candidate used the phrase. And if you know who I'm talking about, you are saying you're old. Anybody willing to say that? I'm old, but I don't know who did it. Jimmy Carter oh, in an interview with Playboy no. magazine. And in it described himself as a born-again Christian. And that became a part of his of his uh, campaign, believe it or not. I say believe it or not, because today he's seen as a, a very left-wing 
person, and born again is considered to be right wing. But Jimmy Carter is a Southern Baptist, and he understood this, this passage. You must be born again. Okay, lots of fun with that. John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16? Mm-hmm. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so whoever would believe in him could have eternal life. It was actually used as a password to determine Korean refugees out of North Korea just before the Korean War. Um, American um, commanders and American ships that were sent to try to evacuate Christians out of North Korea just before the hostilities began um, were very aware that there were probably spies from North Korea in this group. So they were all going to go down to South Korea. The last thing they wanted is to transport spies and embed them. So you know they were arguing amongst themselves, how do we understand who's who? How do we know they're for real? And one of the uh, commanders of one of the, they were actually destroyers because they didn't have you know, luxury ships or liners to, to bring these people in. So they just piled them onto the decks of destroyers. One of them said, any real Christian will understand John 3.16. And they found someone who spoke English and um, among them, or not English, uh, Korean, among them, not this group. And they brought them all in and they asked them one at, one at a time, away from each other. What's John 3.16 say? They didn't have to quote it out of King James or anything, but they had to know the concept and what it meant. And those who knew it passed through were loaded on the destroyer. Those who did not were turned away. How many of you remember Charles Chung and the Jesus First Korean Church that used to use our facility? We've been around, it's been five years since they've been here. But we shared, as, just as we do with Bethesda, we shared our facilities with the Korean church for eight or nine years. And Charles Chun was the preacher of that church. His parents were the ones who told that story. They gave it as a in translation as a testimony to our congregation once because they were in the group. That's how they know. That's how they got out of North Korea. So John 3.16 is an amazing passage because across the world and across the last 2,000 years, everybody understands what that means. Uh, John 4, the woman at the well. Um, if you don't know the significance of that, read the story and ask yourself, not would that be done today, but does that fit what their culture would have done? Because you're going to find, I think there's five different giant cultural taboos that Jesus violated in talking to this woman. And the result was her running into Samaria um, and bringing a bunch of people back and a whole lot of Samaritans believing in him as Messiah. Um, John 11, the story of Lazarus. Everybody understand the story of Lazarus? When you hear Lazarus, what do you hear? Raised from the dead. dead. Lazarus is the resurrected. My van uh, was known around here as the death van for years. This was a slur because no one ever died in that van. Uh, They called it that because it died so many times when youth groups were borrowing it for trips and I get the phone call and send AAA. But I have decreed that my van is to be known as Lazarus because it did not die or it did not cause anyone to die. It died and yet has been risen again. And uh, yeah, believe it or not, 
it passed smog again last summer. <laughs> so I mean, this is a piece of work. It literally falls apart when I ride it on the freeway. Things are no longer there when I get home that were there when I left. <laughs> so I ride it tomorrow because I don't try to ride the bike in the, in the water. Um, by the way, shortest version of the Bible in that passage is what? Jesus. Why did Jesus weep? It was grief. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in four minutes, he's weeping because he sees the grief of Mary and Martha and of Lazarus's friends. It's an extraordinary passage. And we do a disservice when we have kids memorize two words and they don't know the rest of it. Because we all need to know the strongest person ever to inhabit a human body grieved, wept because of death. Um, John 14, 17, farewell discourse we talked about, and then the epilogue of John's gospel. Uh, I talked a little bit about the ending of that. So much could be written that there's no room that would hold the books. Okay, uh, there's seven, the seven miracles that I refer to are listed here. The water to the wine, uh, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man by the, the pool, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the blind man, and the raising of Lazarus which for some reason I decided not to give you the reference for. That's six. Hmm? That's, That's six. six. Oh, interesting. Okay, so what happened here, by the way, and I'm sorry because I did proof it, but obviously it was too late. Um, have you ever tried to take a document from uh, like a 1990 Word and open it in Word, what is it today? It's, it's 2016, right? That's the new Word, because we just got the new one. What it gets you is like 50 pages of little squares, and little weird symbols, and then some words. And that's what I did. <laughs> Opened it up, and um, I will get you a corrected version of that. Uh, the I Am's, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That last one in John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The next sentence is one that we are frequently yelled at for because he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. So there is an absolute exclusivity of, of Jesus. And the world hates that. How arrogant can you be to think your way is the only way? The answer is simple. It isn't my way. It's not my thought. God reached out to us and gave us a way to be forgiven. How arrogant can we be to say to God, I don't want your way, I want to do my own way, when we're the ones that need to be forgiven. So it's real. All right, there's the Gospel of John. It is time for you to go get children. Um, however, if you others have questions, and uh, if your question is a good question, I'll bring it back for the parents to hear next week. How's that? I can leave it on the recording. Have a good night. See you next week. Thank you, sir. Really? I got to turn this off because it's recording you, young.